All right, let me pray and then we'll get started. God, thank you for your word. The greatest treasure, the greatest gift that we have uh, in this life to, to have, to hold it in our hands, in our language. God, it reveals you and gives us wisdom, gives us insight. Uh, the unfolding of your words is light. And so we pray that it would be so this morning, that you would make me clear. God, encourage us with uh, the truth that your word reveals to us. Make us more bold in our adherence to the scriptures, more eager to understand them, to draw near to you through them, even as we are prayerfully dependent on your spirit to give us insight, give us wisdom, uh, to make us embrace all that your word says to us, whether it indicts us, uh, whether it reproves us. God, we, we want all of the benefits of your word. Uh, even as I think about New Orleans this morning, uh, a place that is uh, desolate to such a de- great degree when it comes to preaching, I just remember the, the privilege that it is to open up your word and to proclaim your truth. Uh, and not only to preach it, but to hear it. We just get to do this week after week after week, and God, make it not commonplace for us ever to hear your word opened again and to receive fresh insights into what you've spoken to us that is sufficient and relevant for all time. And we pray that you would have your way in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Second Kings. Chapter 1, 2 Kings chapter 1. In 2 Kings, we encounter Israel's next king, Ahaziah, who has taken the throne after the wicked king Ahab. And look with me at verse 1. In 2 Kings chapter 1, it reads, Now Moab revolted against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go, inquire of Baal Zabub, the god of Ekron, whether I will live from this sickness. But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messenger of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus says Yahweh, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. So the messengers returned to him, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, 
return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says Yahweh, it is, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal Zabub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. King Isaiah, Ahaziah, the king of Israel, is rebuked for seeking insight, help, and, in some sense, hope in some other authority besides the God of Israel. You can hear the repetition in verses 3 and 6, the question Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zabub, the God of Ekron? This was a pagan God, the God of the Philistines. And so here is the Israelite king seeking counsel, help, instruction, insight from that pagan God. Now, as Christians in mass, look to psychological theories and psychiatric labels to tell us what is wrong with us and what to do about our problems, there's something similar that could be said to the church as what was asked of King Ahaziah. You heard the question to him, is, there, is it because there is no God in Israel? Uh, perhaps the question could be put to the church today, Is it because there is no God in the church that you have gone to inquire of the American Psychiatric Association, the authority of this age? We're in, in a very real sense, not in a very different position than Ahaziah. Uh, He's not rebuked because he's gone to a specific God. It's not like the correction comes to Ahaziah because of this God in particular, as opposed to some other God, and that would have been okay. No, he's rebuked because he's gone anywhere else to look for help, to search for answers. As if those gods, those pagan deities, those false gods, which are really no gods at all, have superior wisdom to the God of Israel. And so as I just think about what the church has largely done in our day with psychology and psychiatric labels on this issue of mental illness, we've really committed the very same sin. We've attributed wisdom and insight to some other authority besides God. Now, wherever God has spoken, he has the final word. You realize this. Doesn't matter what the issue is, if God has spoken on that issue, then when he has spoken, there's nothing else to be said. There's nothing else that should be added because God is the authority on whatever issue that he speaks. You can pull up a map, look for directions to get to wherever you're going, and we do that easily. We've got them in our pockets, right? Well, God hasn't spoken on those things. He hasn't told you how to get to sagebrush coffee, for example, from here. If you, if you don't know how to get there without your map, you should. 
But God hasn't spoken on those issues. And so we're free to inquire of whatever authorities, whatever helps, might avail themselves to us. But on other issues where God has spoken, the Christian, and frankly all humans, are not free to seek answers wherever we might like. We are bound to God as creatures to regard him as our authority. And so on these issues of mental illness, it is incumbent on us to not neglect the scriptures and instead to consult what God has said. But instead, we've done the exact opposite in in our day. We have neglected the scriptures. We've, in a sense, laid down our discernment at the feet of the psychiatric, psychological professionals and said to them, all right, tell me what you want from me. Tell me what's wrong with me. Tell me how to think about what happens in my mental life. And, I, and I'll do it. We, we shouldn't do that because God has actually given us a clear word in the scriptures on mental life. And so this morning... In this part three, I plan to close this series with one final reason to reject the current cultural understanding of mental illness. And it is this reason number seven, the Bible can account for the behavioral abnormalities described in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. We've looked at six reasons thus far. This makes number seven. Just to review briefly, the term mental illness is a misnomer according to scripture. It's misnamed. There is no such thing as actual mental illness because the mind, that immaterial part of you, the soul, mind, heart, spirit, cannot get sick. It can be affected by sickness through the physical body, but it, it itself cannot be sick. So mental illness is a misnomer. Number two, the term lacks a concrete definition. We saw in past weeks that the professionals in these fields actually admit that very thing. Number three, it requires an evolutionary materialistic anthropology. Your view of man must be reduced to what evolution claims uh, to what's called secular humanism or materialism. All we are is our bodies. And so in order to accept what the culture says about mental illness, you have to actually embrace that as a presupposition. And Christians who don't believe that just lack or fail to discern how they're actually accepting that premise. Number four, diagnosing mental disorders lacks the objectivity of true medical diagnoses. Number five, there is no psychological standard for normal human behavior. Therefore, abnormality is indeterminable. You can't say what is normal or what's abnormal if you have no single standard for what is normal. And then number six, psychological labels are inherently instructive. And we said that they instruct us regarding identity and morality. They tell us who we are and what we should do. And so we should reject the inherent instruction that comes with psychological labels. And so 
today, all we have is the final reason, number seven, to demonstrate that the Bible does in fact, can in fact, account for the behavioral abnormalities mentioned in the psychiatric Bible, as it were, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This book is on its fifth iteration since 1952. 1952 is when DSM-1 appeared. It was first published. And since then, they've had what has appeared now in the fifth version. This is the standard of psychiatry. Uh, It is intended to aid professionals, licensed professionals, in determining what mental disorder their patient has. And so professionals are consulting the DSM using the categories of the DSM, the diagnostic criteria to determine the person coming in for therapy is suffering from what they would call this or that disease, this or that mental illness. And so here's the, the point for, for today. If Scripture does speak to the full gamut of human experiences, then we should be able to peruse a book like the DSM. And if you can make sense of the professional language, clinical language used there, and understand the human behaviors being described, then you should be able to go from the DSM back to real life, look around you, and back to your Bible and say, here's what I see here. This isn't foreign to real life or scripture. If it's just categorizing human behaviors and scripture also does the same, describes human experiences, human behaviors, you have much of your Bible that is narrative And even in the parts of Scripture that aren't narrative, embedded in that is a description or an assumption about what humans normally do. Then you should see overlapping categories, overlapping descriptions from the DSM and in Scripture. And if it's true that they're overlapping descriptions, then that means what the DSM has called licensed professionals to be about in diagnosing those behaviors, they're actually infringing on the church's turf. If scripture talks about those same behaviors, but has a different name for them, then we should accept scripture's names for those things, not the APA's description or the APA's labels. Does that make sense? And I want to demonstrate today that that is exactly what you can do. A few qualifications before we jump into some of these categories. Um, This is something of of just low-hanging fruit. You know, somebody might hear this series and say, yeah, well, what about, and I just want to address those whatabouts. 
before addressing uh, what we have for this morning. And it's first off, one qualification is this, that the body does actually affect the soul. The body does actually affect the soul and vice versa. The soul affects the body. Proverbs is a great book to see this. Uh, Just as a reminder, Proverbs 4.23, a passage that you know and love likely, Solomon talks about the governing role that the inner man, the immaterial self, has on the outer man or the immaterial self. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Who you are, those springs of life, the things that flow out of you into normal life, are primarily shaped by what Solomon calls the heart. The heart, the immaterial self. It is from there that the springs of life flow. So your thoughts, your choices, your desires, your motivations, your decisions, your will, all of those things flow out of your heart, your emotions, your mental life. And so what you do with your heart he says, is, a, is of utmost importance. If you want to be a different person, if you want to have a different life, then guard your heart. You tell your heart what to do. You direct your heart in the way, as he says in Proverbs twenty three nineteen. Direct your heart in the way. Don't let your heart, whatever natural inclinations come to it, come to you, guide you. No, you take God's truth and you believe it at the heart level against every inclination in you at times that says that's not true. And you say, no, God says this, this is true. Therefore, we must live like this. We must go this way. That's heart shepherding. So certainly the inner man, the immaterial self is the sort of ruler of the life of the external self. But the body also has an effect on the soul. Just think of one example of how physical sickness potentially leads to a soul issue like despair. Job, perhaps, come to mind, right? His external circumstances, children die, property's gone, even his wife becomes a foolish counselor to him, and then his friends prove to be poor counselors as well. All of these external influences, plus he's lost his health, and he gets to the point we find in chapter 3 where he is ready to curse the day of his birth. He is despairing of life. In subsequent chapters, wishing he could die, but he's too righteous to kill himself, and he wishes that God would just finish him already. He's despairing of life because of these other influences impacting his outer body. So physical sickness can even impact the soul. Uh, Another just common example, hormone changes following pregnancy. That's a real thing. 
pregnancy brain, as you moms know. It's like, what happened? I just can't think right. right? You just have changes happening in your physical body that actually inhibit mental activity. Your memory seems gone, can't think as clearly. Fatigue is a part of that. And this is why if you don't sleep for long enough, you start exhibiting symptoms uh, similar to drug use. Not because you're using drugs, but because your body actually needs physical rest. And so those mental faculties are affected by just simple physical factors. Um, And then you could add to this list things like brain injuries or drug consumption. They actually, brain injuries or brain disease seriously impacts mental faculties. So your memory's gone, your personality could change, you grow a tumor in your brain, and you you, uh, have hormone changes happening at an increased rate. And it seems to just dra- dramatically shift and change the personality. Those are real things, real impacts that the physical body has on the soul. But just notice in each of those examples how different that is from your typical run-of-the-mill psychiatric diagnosis. In each of those examples, you can point to real, identifiable, testable changes in the body impacting men- mental activity. It's not the other way around where I can't test it, I can't tell, there's no significant life events happening, but we're going to make an assumption about what must be happening in your body because of your behavior, because of your symptoms, because you're depressed, anxious, fearful, etc. Unfortunately, those extreme examples or those clear examples about the body impacting the soul end up becoming the prominent examples to legitimize psychology and psychiatry as fields of study. But we just need to be be thoughtful about those examples, real examples, legitimate examples that seek to legitimize an illegitimate field of study. Uh, Another qualification to consider is that some contributions of psychology are actually helpful. Let me just give you a couple examples. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that is an actual, there's something helpful about it, I'll say. Uh, And if it's only this, then it's helpful. They have categorized symptoms of bizarre behavior or abnormal, what they call abnormal human behavior. They've categorized symptoms and systematically grouped them as they usually are found together. So the Christian can look at that even and say, on a human level, based on pure human observation, these things usually go together. Thanks. That's helpful on some level. The issue is when they take those observations and and try to interpret them for us, and say, not only is this what's happening, but here's why. That's, that's when we cry foul. We don't, we, you don't get to interpret the data for us. 
But to make the observations is actually helpful. It's no different than a scientist looking through a microscope, looking through a telescope and saying, here's what I see. There are stars, galaxies out there far away. Here's how they look. And we can say, thank you, scientist. Thank you, astronomer. And then when they go further and say, therefore, here's how old the earth is, we say, ah, time out. You're infringing. Don't interpret the data for me. Just tell me what you see. And and the DSM has sort of done that for us. So yeah, some, some contributions of psychology can be helpful. Even some research studies that document uh, human response, human responses or patterns in human behavior. Some of those things can be helpful. Uh, the deeper you dive into those studies, you have to just be careful and discern where are they interpreting and where are they making observations. And that is not always a clear line there. What's important to know about these benefits that come to us in these fields is that the benefits themselves are incidental. That means they're not a result of the good science being done, or or rather the bad science being done. Uh, The benefits are incidental in the sense that they're helpful in spite of the presuppositions of those fields, in spite of the bad philosophical and practical assumptions that are being made. And so, you know, a a broken clock is right twice a day is sort of the idea there. And then one final qualification is that all psychiatric labels are not fictitious or false. If you opened up the DSM, you would come across a spectrum of labels, Uh, what's called mental disorders. And for example, you would have in the DSM Alzheimer's disease treated the same way or, or just categorically, they would consider Alzheimer's disease and attention hyperactivity or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder to be differences of a, of a similar order. They're both mental disabilities, just different. Or something like autism and anxiety. They would treat them all as mental illnesses. But with Alzheimer's disease, a legitimate brain deterioration disease, or autism, a neurological issue, developmental neurological malfunction, those things are not the same as ADHD or anxiety disorders. But in the field of psychology or psychiatry, it treats them all the same. As if, not that they have the same treatment, but you understand they treat them all as mental disorders. Some legitimate, some absolutely not. I think that what what Thomas says says about... uh, what seems to be legitimate in these fields is helpful. You can uh, pull up that Thomas Sass quote just for, so we can all see it. Here's what he says about malingering. Again, re- remember, malingering is fake diseases. He says the medicalization of malingering, right, finding the problem and solution in medicine of human problems, the medicalization of malingering is the fatal genetic defect 
that dooms all theories and treatments of mental diseases. Although medicalization encompasses more than psychiatry, we must be clear about one thing. Psychiatry is medicalization through and through. Whatever aspect of psychiatry psychiatrists claim is not medicalization is not medicalization only if it deals with proven disease, in which case it belongs to neurology, neuropathology, neurochemistry, neuropharmacology, or neurosurgery, not psychiatry. Do you see what he's doing there? Okay, you're pointing to some legitimate things, the psychiatrist might say. And he's saying, well, if it's legitimate, and if it's not, if it's a legitimate disease, then it's no longer your field. It can be safely grouped in some other field of study. He goes on to say, psychoanalysis is medicalization squared. It is important in this connection not to be fooled by lay analysis, clinical psychology, or social work. These and other non-medical mental health and counseling professions are medicalizations cubed. As if to compensate for their lack of medical knowledge and medical privileges, non-medical mental health profession professionals are even more deeply committed than psychiatrists to their claim of special expertise in the diagnosis and treatment of mental illnesses. He's not shy at all about his accusations, what he's, what he's claiming. But when he gets down to the, the root issue, he's absolutely right. Uh, Jay Adams says this same thing a different way. He says, psychiatry has no exclusive province that it may call its own. Anything legitimate found in those fields can be safely put in other categories and other legitimate fields of study. And so if someone pointed to the helpfulness or the usefulness, what's legitimate in those fields, then we don't necessarily disagree with them. We would just say that it's not exclusive or unique to psychology or psychiatry. With those qualifications in mind, really what the whole issue rests on is what the whole issue rests on for, for every issue for us is what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. Not the logic of it, but what do the scriptures say? And let me just encourage you, open up first to 2 Samuel 13, and we encounter a clear, even shocking example of malingering, fake illnesses. Faking sickness. This is in, found in one of David's sons, Amnon. And perhaps you remember the story. We won't read the entire story. But Amnon is a perverted man. Look at verse number one. Now it happened afterwards that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. This is not a commendable sibling affection, but he loved her as lovers 
do or would. And so notice in verse 2, Amnon was so distressed because of his sister Tamar that he did what? (laughs) Made himself ill, malingering. Uh, I don't know where the term lovesick originated. Maybe it's here. He was lovesick. So it was hard in Amnon's sight to do anything to her. So he is distressed, upset, that he can't do anything more. He can't live out his perverted desires with his sister. But wherever there's a wrong desire, there's always a willing counselor not far behind. Look at verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So here's cousin. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Here we have a depressed man, not depressed because of some disorder, but because of perverted desires. He can't have his perverted desires, and that has produced depression. He says, Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. He's encouraging malingering. And your father will come to see you, and you will say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So this is verse six, what he did. He pretended to be ill and the king came to him and did this very thing. He makes the request. David consents and in a tremendous turn of irony in the story, David becomes the one to do harm, bring disaster on his own family similar to the way he commissioned Uriah to bring disaster on himself. This is God's providence working itself out against David, bringing violence, introducing violence into his household as he swore would happen. Verse 9, he sends everyone out of the room, has Tamar bring food, Verse 11, takes her, commits sexual immorality. This is something according to Leviticus 18. You can write down Leviticus 18, verses 6 and verse 9, says ought not to happen. You would not uncover the nakedness of your blood relative. And then it gives that long list of of relatives that are off limits when it comes to sexual relations. Uh, And the specific injunction from God in Leviticus 18 is to say, you're not going to do what's done in Egypt and you're not going to do what's done in Canaan. So where you're coming from and where you're going, there's perversion that's encouraged. You're not to do that. You're to be different. You're to be sanctified. You're to be a holy nation. Notice that this is exactly what Tamar appeals to, verse 12 Do not violate me, my brother, for such a thing is not done in Israel. She knows the law. Such a thing is not done in Israel. 
do not do this disgraceful thing. So she makes an appeal to the wrongness just of the deed itself. This is disobedient. This is sin. This is shameful. It's disgraceful. And then she appeals not only to the divine law, to what God requires, but then also to the reasonableness on a human standard, on a human level. Where could I get rid of my reproach? That's as for me. And then, but as for you, you will be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Hey, this, this is sin against God, sin against me, sin against self. Don't do it. And he does it anyway. This is, the reason this is pertinent to the conversation about mental illnesses is because notice you have a depressed patient, a depressed man who is faking illness to have some inward, wrongly motivated desire. Every psychological diagnosis is not perhaps this clear, or even this malicious, right? We wouldn't want to accuse every person who has bought into psychiatric labels of intense, intentional malice. No, they may have bought into a wrong worldview, believed a lie, even as a Christian. That doesn't mean malice is at play. Nevertheless, it is wrong wrong belief. But this is a a clear example of intentional malice. And I'm convinced that some who have embraced the psychiatric diagnoses do belong in this category. Some are intentional in their malingering. Um, You can, if you own Jay Adams' book, Competent to Counsel, uh, read what pages? I had it written down here. Pages 29 to 35 in Competent to Counsel. Uh, he gives two examples of intentional malingering. One was uh, a learned behavior of, of just diverting attention. A student who adopted the behaviors at a young age of putting on shows of bizarre behavior when he was called to account or because of fear of man. And then you can read a second story in in Adam's book about a woman who had committed adultery with her neighbor. She was so ashamed that it was actually preferable to her to pretend to be uh, depressed and be put in a mental institution than to have to come clean about her adultery. So this still does happen in our day. Another example, you can just write this down, 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15. King David, before he's king, lives among the Philistines and actually practices malingering. You remember that? And what does the king of the Philistines say to his servants? Why you bring me a madman? I don't have enough madmen in my kingdom that you're bringing me David to? David was so convincing that everybody around him actually thought he was crazy, thought he was psychotic. Too often in these conversations, at least the ones that I've had, people say, yeah, but I know an actual case 
a real, I saw it with my own eyes. This, was, this one was undeniable. That's what they were saying about David. We should believe the scripture over our experiences. Let's take another, uh, just something besides malingering. What about narcissistic personality disorder? Narcissistic personality disorder. Can you think of any biblical examples that might fit that description, fit that label? This would just be a fun exercise on your own. You know, what, what biblical examples could I attach to these psychiatric labels? Um, we'll just leave Satan aside for a moment because that would be an easy one. Just listen to the way the DSM defines this. A pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, need for admiration, and lack of empathy beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following. And then it gives nine criteria that if five of these are present, and began by early adulthood, present in a variety of contexts, that person can be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. There are a group of biblical characters that fit every single one, every single nine criteria as described in the DSM, the Jewish leadership in the New Testament. The Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, and the scribes. Criteria one, the DSM reads, has a grandiose sense of self-importance, exaggerates achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. So they haven't earned the admiration they expect. Were the Pharisees guilty of this? Yes, they were. Because in Matthew 3, 9, it said that they boasted in having Abraham as their father. They made that their boast. What a ridiculous thing to hang your hat on. What a foolish claim to, as this says, make a standard of your own self-importance. Think about, they want to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. We are children of Abraham. Yeah, you haven't actually done anything. <laughs> but you want to be esteemed for it? That's criteria one. What about criteria two? Is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. They were guilty of this as well. How do we know they were preoccupied with uh, fantasies of power, a pursuit of power? Because Mark 14, verses 72 to 15:1 notes that they lost sleep to secure their power and place by putting Jesus to death. They went out of their way, were willing to lose sleep. They were so obsessed with maintaining their power among the Jewish people, they were willing to lose sleep to make sure that they maintained it. 
Proverbs 4 says that they can't sleep unless they have made someone stumble. This is them. Narcissistic. They were also obsessed with maintaining uh, their place in their nation, John eleven forty eight says, and they strove to appear outwardly clean. Jesus accuses them in Matthew 23 of cleaning the outside of the tomb while inwardly it's full of dead men's bones and rottenness. And he actually uses the term beautiful in that passage. They make the outside of the tomb beautiful. Well, this is what the DSM says they're preoccupied with, fantasies of beauty. They fit the bill. Criteria three, believes he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people or institutions. This is what they were guilty of, which is why in John 3, Jesus has to tell Nicodemus the startling reality that God loved the world and sent his son by sending his son to die for the world. That means not just Jewish men who are Pharisees. God doesn't just love you. He actually loves all kinds of people. Women too. Gentiles too. Children too. They thought they were special, they thought they were unique, and they should only associate with their kind. They're guilty of criteria three. Criteria four requires excessive admiration. They did require excessive admiration. This is why they, in their giving, prayer, and fasting, made a show of it. On the street corners, in front of people, Recognize me, and Jesus has to come in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon 1 in your New Testament, and say what? You need a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, the hypocritical righteousness that desires to be praised by men. All they want is excessive admiration from people. So they fit criteria 4. Criteria 5 has a sense of entitlement i.e. unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations. This is what Jesus notes that they do in their traditions of men. Matthew 15, they expected even to be treated by children better than the children should treat those parents. Everything you owe your parents, give to us, their man-made tradition said. We are worthy of more favor than your parents, children. Narcissistic. Criteria six, interpersonally exploitative. They take advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. Luke 20, they devoured widows' houses. Criteria seven, they lacked empathy. Unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings or needs of others, Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 4, say that they tie up heavy burdens on people and refuse to help them by even lifting a finger to carry them. Sound like a lack of empathy? Narcissism. Criteria 8 is envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her. They were guilty of this. Even Pilate saw this. Mark 15, 10, Pilate recognized that they handed Jesus over to be crucified because of envy Mark records. 
And then finally, they show arrogant or haughty behaviors or attitudes. Is anything more haughty, more arrogant and proud than crucifying the perfect son of God? No. Anyone of the Pharisees and scribes, members of the Sanhedrin, could have walked into one of our psychiatrist's office. What's wrong with you? Well, I'm envious of others. I'm haughty and arrogant. I love to be esteemed. I have grandiose views of myself to the detriment of others. I fail to show empathy. I mean, if they just would have just been honest about who they were, they would have been given a pill for that. But that wasn't their problem. They didn't have narcissistic personality disorder. They were wicked men. (laughs) They were sinners. You could put other examples, the fool in Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 12, inflated views of his own wisdom, the sluggard who sees himself as wiser than seven men who can answer sensibly. Proverbs 26, 16 could be diagnosed with this, I'm convinced. Let me just give you uh, several other categories. Schizophrenia, Nebuchadnezzar, could have been labeled a schizophrenic. Legion in Mark 5 could have been labeled schizophrenic. What was wrong with those men? Well, in one case, Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent. He was so arrogant, divine judgment came down on him until he repented. And he was made like a beast. He didn't have a disorder. He was proud. And when he repented, he gained his sense back. Perhaps repentance should be the treatment for some. Legion, what was wrong with him? He was demon-possessed. Multiple personality disorder? No, just (laughs) demon-possessed. That's no less real today than it was then. What about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? If war... And traumatic experiences in war are often the cause of this disease. Then why would a man like David not have contracted this? How many wars did David see? Joab, Abner, various kings in the Old Testament. Imagine the slaughter that Jesus is going to initiate when he returns. He will not contract PTSD. Jesus, you just read Psalm 22, especially when it talks about his rejection by men in the middle of that psalm. You think, how did he not have PTSD, that kind of trauma done to his physical body, done to his soul? What about Joseph? Uh, You you have a, a large category in the DSM dealing with types of trauma, traumatic disorders. I mean, if, if being sold by your brothers into slavery because they chose not to kill you after they threw you in a pit, being wronged, wrongly accused, put in prison, 
unjustly treated. I mean, surely something's got to be wrong with him, right? Some sort of traumatic disorder. No, he trusted the sovereignty of God. He was preserved from any of those things. A man like Jeremiah perhaps could fit the category. What about Paul as he lists all of his experiences? Shipwrecked, beaten five times by the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. And all of those things that he lists in 2 Corinthians 11. He, He should have been a primary candidate for some sort of traumatic illness label, but he wasn't. He trusted the Lord, committed himself to God, pressed on to the next persecution, to the next town. Jesus was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53.3. Sounds like a person who is categorized or described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, should have some sort of depressed Diagnosis? No, he didn't. A man like Elijah, 1 Kings 19, various psalmists uh, exhibit the kinds of behaviors in their description of their own situations that you would expect to find uh, among depressed people. Social anxiety disorders, bipolar 1 disorder, even psychosis, uh, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, all of these things, can, you can find legitimate cases in Scripture that mirror the criteria in the DSM for these things. And so what, is, what does all of this mean? This means that, just by way of application, and we'll close with this, one, be committed to the truth of Scripture more than your own experiences. This is where it's just incumbent on us to trust God's voice over our own, right? To trust God's word over our own inclinations, over what our own heart might tell us is true. What does God say when it feels like the label is appropriate? When, in, when I look out at someone else's experiences and it seems like the psychiatric label is warranted, what does the scripture say? What does it tell me about disease? If, if, if there can't be found a biological cause for that behavior, what do the scriptures tell me to, to do about that? I've got to be more committed to the scriptures than my own experience, what my own heart might tell me about my experiences. Not only be committed to the truth of Scripture more than our own experience, but secondly, uh, I think that this just demands that as we think about people we know who've adopted these labels, who even might be in the professions and related fields dealing with a psychologized, medicalized culture. We need to be committed to scripture, but also compassionate. Be compassionate toward those people. Let me just give you some examples. Think about 
the immensity of understanding what Scripture's teaching on mental illness does to your thinking. If, if a parent has medicated their children, raised the family, medicated their children or a child, and is now witnessing the detrimental effects of a child uh, hooked on a medication, can't function now in life without a psychiatric, psychotropic drug. And then a parent hears this. It wasn't even legitimate. Their behavior was due to perhaps weaknesses in our parenting. Be compassionate, right? That's a significant hurdle to get over. And maybe they don't hear this and go, I'm eager to embrace everything that I'm hearing. In one sense, that's understandable. There's a lot at stake in accepting the truth that that we're describing. And so I think that demands just a patient walking with each other, laboring with each other. They don't accept that the first conversation or maybe the second or third or fourth conversation, that, that's okay. Continue to walk with each other. Pray for each other. Don't make your entire relationship hinging on accepting this truth about mental illness. Perhaps God will open their eyes later down the road. We can love them in spite of those differences. And even for for each of us who understands these truths, we can all say together, but for the grace of God, there go I. I would be one whose life is ruined by accepting those labels if I had, if it weren't for the grace of God. And then there's just a whole, I think about teachers in our church, uh, social workers, those School counselors, I mean, all dealing with a culture, a, a, a profession that has embraced wholesale these things. Um, people have asked me when I've taught this in small group or in other contexts, do I need to quit my job? I don't know. Don't quit yet. Let's talk. <laughs> right? We can be patient. We can navigate those things together. Sometimes the answer has been no. Sometimes the answer is maybe or Yes. You should probably look for other employment. So be committed, be compassionate, be patient. First uh, Thessalonians five fourteen gives us this instruction for the weak, is to help them. There's a weakness in thinking. If there's a weakness in practice, then help. Don't admonish. Don't rebuke. <laughs> and don't encourage. But help is the prescription there. So help. Finally, I want to just say something to uh, those here who, or perhaps who will hear this, um, taking psychotropic drugs. Uh, Perhaps you've been diagnosed with some mental illness uh, and you've taken medication for it. Uh, This is not a charge to go stop taking your medication today. That can have its own detrimental effects. Um, Oftentimes those drugs are so potent 
they require a calculated, slow progression uh, to wean you off of medication. And so with your physician, you should, uh, and help from others in the body, from the elders, from your pastors, let us help you think of a wise way to think about the, the label and how to navigate perhaps coming off of medication you might be taking. I think that uh, Robert Smith actually gives in his uh, Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference some helpful questions to bring to physicians. And so I've in- encouraged and equipped people in this church to take these to their doctor to help them even discern what the doctor's thinking and why they're on these medications. Let me just read those to you briefly. Here are questions that you can ask your doctor for clarity. Number one, what tests were run to prove a physical problem is present? How do those tests prove the presence? And is the condition a provable, demonstrable fact or simply a theory? You can ask your doctor these things. Number two, how do you know the alleged physical condition is the cause of the emotional or behavioral actions? Is the link proven? A proven demonstrable fact or simply a theory? And then thirdly, what proof do you have that the medicine you're recommending corrects the physical problem, actually cures it, not just puts a Band-Aid on the way I'm feeling, but actually addresses the organic issue? If you brought those to your doctor, he'd probably be shocked, number one. He'd say, what are you reading? Why are you asking? But it'd be a good conversation to start. Uh, and those of us who, are, who know of, of those in this situation uh, being medicated, um, just want to encourage us to think rightly about what is and isn't sin. Uh, the act of taking a pill is not in and of itself sin. You recognize that. It can be taken from sinful motives or because I believed a lie. That would be sin. But not the act of taking a pill is in itself sinful. Romans 14, 23 says anything done apart from faith is itself sinful. And so we just need help patiently thinking about and discerning the use of psychotropic medications as we walk uh, with each other. Um, if you have questions, as, as some of you already have the past two weeks, I just want to encourage you, uh, come talk to me, talk to the elders. This is a, uh, at times, complicated issue that just requires nuance and discernment. I hope that this has provided at least a foundation for us to build on and think about these issues together. Uh, and mo- more importantly, as with this issue, as with every issue, We want to go back to the sufficient word of God and say, what does God say about it? And believe what he says there and then care for each other based on what the scripture says. And by God's grace, we'll do just that. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for, again, your wise, wise counsel to us in your word. That we have all of the resources that we need to obey you in this life, to live a a life that is pleasing to you even safe for us to seek refuge in you by retreating to your word and not adding anything to it, not amending it in any way, 
but putting our own foolish thoughts aside and simply embracing what you've said to us. Give us grace in our pursuit of doing this. Help us to be strengthened in the grace that's found in Jesus Christ to this end. Also that his name is magnified here in Tempe, in New Orleans, and wherever else you might bring us and send us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.